My name is Andy Cahill. I'm a transformational coach, and I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an incredible array of practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with your friends and colleagues, subscribing on Apple Podcasts, giving us a high-star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Dr. Shoshana Simons. This is an awesome conversation. Shoshana has a rich background in integrating performance and expressive art structures into multiple contexts with both children and adults, in educational settings, therapeutic settings, and larger organizational systems, which we talk about at length today. She has a particular interest in the integration of the arts into spiritual practice and social and emotional development, the ways that we can use performance and expression as catalysts for healing and social change. Over the past several years, she's focused on developing an expressive art-centered approach to narrative therapy. She's highly skilled at the art of science and teaching and has over 20 years practice bringing all of these learning methodologies into both in-person and online classes. She teaches at the California Institute of Integral Studies currently in their expressive arts program, but she also helped run their transformative leadership program and their Transformative Studies doctoral program. She has published in the areas of couple therapy, narrative approaches to leadership and system change, sustainable leadership, the role of spirituality in children's social and emotional development. I could go on and on. This is a person who has been walking the walk for decades, helping people live with more presence, more connection to their truth, more a sense of what it means to be in relationship with each other in a way that is healing, empowering, and inspiring. Our conversation today goes deep into all of these themes, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So let's get centered. (sighs) Shoshana Simons. Shoshana Simons, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you. It's lovely to yeah. be in this Wonder Dome. It is, isn't it wondrous? <laughs> yes, I like to imagine that instead of us here as two-dimensional figures on the screen, we are in the world, the three-dimensional world together in that space of wonder and possibility. And I'm so grateful that you said yes to this invitation. I had the good fortune of getting connected to you through our, our mutual colleague, Pamela, with, who has founded Open Circle, of which you played an integral part. And learning more about your journey as, as a therapist, as an artist, as a practitioner, as a community builder, as a consultant, just blown away by the ways that you have walked the walk, working with homeless families and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and everyone in between. And I think we just have so much territory to discover, to, to explore today. I'm excited for it. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. 
So one thing I'm really tuning into, having had a chance to absorb some of uh, your work, including a chapter from your forthcoming book, which I'm really excited for you to have that published. So whenever that happens, please let Just us know. Break, it's not my, that chapter is from my, uh, not my book that I am, my co a colleague and I are uh, working on a proposal for our own book, but that chapter is for a book uh, that's being edited by Kathy Malchiotti. Ah, I see. So there will be contributions from multiple people. Yes, she's putting together a fantastic, uh, it's a stupid publication. I guess the publication will be set back a little bit by, because of the the virus. Yeah. Um, but it's um, uh, a handbook of, of uh, expressive arts therapy with, from different approaches. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, well, I took a lot from that, and I'm excited to see it in the wild alongside the perspectives of all these other practitioners. But the thing that's that's emerging for me that I want to kind of check with you to see that if it captures the spirit of what you're up to in the world is this sense that you really have a commitment, regardless of context, to creating spaces that help lift up voices that are otherwise oppressed or subjugated or silenced. And that yes. your your approach to that is is not an approach of of judgment or or shaming the quote unquote oppressors or or any of that. It's really inviting everyone into share and bear witness to the complexity of the stories that we're all living in, so that we might all be enlarged and expanded as as a as a community. Is that right? That's really yes you put your finger on a really important point that can be hard to explain but yes absolutely yeah I, I I'm curious to hear how this resonates with you but one dynamic of the the kind of polarity between oppressed and and oppressor is that it's and, and I'm not sort of justifying anything, but it can be really scary for someone who, who discovers that they're in a position of, uh, that they have been oppressing others. And to find that out and to discover it can, can really put up a wall and a defense. It, it can, in some, can, in some cases, actually heighten the very dynamic that we're, we're trying to untangle. Mm -hmm. And what I, I get the sense that you do is really walk alongside people on both sides of that dynamic and invite them into a space where some of that defensiveness, that polarity can be integrated and resolved as opposed to heightened and increased. Uh -huh. And I wonder, like, we're just living in this remarkable moment, in particular with the COVID-19 pandemic, but I would argue well before this particular specter uh, crisis reared its head, we were seeing just more and more polarization around those kinds of polarities around oppressor oppressed, um, gen around gender dynamics, identity dynamics. And, and I'm wondering just how you've been living with it and sitting with that reality in, in our collective landscape right now and what thoughts you have as we, as we find a way into it that invites everyone to the table. Yeah. I, you know, I think that it, um, I, I'm as much a product of the us and them as anyone else's. So it's not like I feel like I've, res I've come to any resolution. I think maybe it's more that I lived the questions mm. actively and what helps me maintain, 
maintain the everyday practice of living those questions, I think is my students Hmm. Um, because they sit in the middle of all of that and kind of keep me humble and on track (laughs) and defensive too. It was like all of the above. I'm not outside of any of that. And I think the question for me, uh, me personally and central to how I operate in whatever in in human relationships is how is that landing in my body what is that doing inside of me and how am I uh, either containing and transmuting that into something positive or being a field that is perpetuating conflict and hostility Mm. Mm. yeah let's can we unpack that a little bit so so is there perhaps there's a moment you can think of recently working with your students or with a client where, where you ask that question, how is this landing in my body? How is this producing a certain kind of field of energy in me that's impacting people around me? What did that, like, what did you notice when you asked that question? Where was it landing in your body and how did that, that shift how you were relating to the other people in the room? Well, I could give a real current, not in the room, in the room example, because I'm teaching online at the moment. Right. In the virtual <laughs> room. Yes. Yeah, that would be great. And in, in whatever way you're comfortable sharing, I think that'd be really helpful for people. So in my biggest part of my life, which is my, my work at CIS, um, I teach the family and couples track, mm-hmm. uh, which I love doing. And we integrate the arts mm-hmm. into that um, track. And I teach both. The, uh, we have two tracks. We have a, a hybrid track where students come to the program a week out of the semester and then they go home and they're doing the program online. And then we have a campus-based based class. So uh, who are there, who choose to be, have a choice to, to do the program in person and very intentionally made that choice because teaching and learning online is really challenging for them. So uh, we had a class last week and the theme was on intimate partner violence. Mm. And here I was in my, you know, sheltering in place, looking at my Zoom. And I looked in at the, the screen at my students who was really used to, to feeling into each other in person. And I felt like I was, I was with my students and everyone was in a burrow, in a rabbit hole. Mm. And I could feel that in my body. And I, you know, with one of my, uh, actually one of my um, former students came back as a guest uh, teacher because she's doing incredible work around intimate partner violence and she was guest presenting so I got the opportunity to see the whole of seeing this graduate of my program who did a masterful job in facilitating this class getting a a visceral sense of of the field of what my students were experiencing by just seeing their bodies in space through the screen all at once in the snapshot and noticing how I was having a kind of secondary trauma response to the whole thing. Mm. But the visual images, the, the the sensory experience, even though we aren't in a sensory environment because we're not in, in person, but I could feel it in my body. And um, a, an expectation that when, when the students would write their written responses to the class, which is what they do, they do some reflective journaling about the material afterwards, that it would reflect... Um, a lot of sense of tension, uh, heightened tension and dis-ease in kind of having to address this material at this time Mm. when 
um, when when our sense of threat as human beings is so high. Yeah. Um, and I think I was I was also really aware of my sense of. Uh, it landed in my body very strongly, the realization of the fact that many folks who are actively being uh, living through violent situations, domestic violence situations, are being, are trapped with their, with, with the person who's abusing them. Mm. Um, and it was like that, there's no escape from knowing that. And the visuals of the, of the classroom space on Zoom captured that. And the part of me that wants to say, oh, just put that away, just put that aside, mm. saying, no, this is what this work is about. This is what I train students to do, and it's what I need to do to be able to train students to do this work. We have to be with what is. We have to let things land and use our own capacity to breathe, to feel, but without coming too much in a conceptual place to push it away, to let it land enough and go through us so that we can be present for people who are in, in pain, to help them be with what is as well and come to some creative new solutions to the challenges that they are experiencing or that we're, we're all experiencing in the present. Mm. Mm. One thing that tunes me into, and thank you for sharing that concrete example, which yeah, there's not a, there's no light solution. Put it over here. It's like there's no over here to put it into. Right. We're, in it. We're in these physical contained spaces, and some of us may be in physical contained spaces with someone else who is violent. Yeah. One thing that tunes me into from the place of a practitioner's you know, there's a part of us I found working with my clients, I found in conversation with others, there's a part of us that wants to find a way to just ignore those truths, to sort of stay above the neck, uh, away from what we're feeling in our bodies, away from emotion, away from looking at other people's suffering because it makes us suffer. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is we have an obligation, a responsibility to, to open up to the truth and learn how to be with it, that we can't reach through the computer screen in this particular example and, and pull someone out of their, their self-containment right now. So how do we, how do we develop? What I want to hear from you is how do we develop that? Like the paradox is that the more we open up, the more we're going to notice other people's suffering and notice the complexity of the world's, which means it's going to demand more of us to be able to be with what is. And I'd just love to hear you talk about how you develop that capacity to be with what is, even when what is is really sad or traumatic or upsetting. Mm. That's a really wonderful question, field to explore, and my mind goes off in many directions <laughs> at the same <Yeah>. time. <laughs> Well, we could just take one of them, any one that feels yeah. particularly interesting to you. I've been using this phrase lately because, again, it's like I don't have any answers. It's just the lifelong questions, right? Yeah. Um, and out of my own history um, of learning the, how to stay in my own lane, like that's been my lifelong challenge 
because my tendency has to been to jump into savior mode. I got into the the world of community work and therapy, et cetera, et cetera, out of my own, like many of us do, out of our own, out of my own narrative, mm. and my lifelong, my lifelong challenge and my own spiritual development and my development as a human being has been how do I stay in my own lane? Because I can't really I may feel like I can do something by butting into someone else's lane, but I can't. Mm. Everyone has their own. My deepest belief is that everyone has the answers to to their own challenges when they are in connection with others within the field. It's not Mm. an individualistic um, idea. It's not a self-help idea. It's rooted in an experience that I live into more and more and more of the we. I don't know, but together we do. As one of my colleagues coined this amazing phrase that my my program lives by. I don't know, but together we do. If I can trust that, then anyone that I is seeking my counsel or support, how do I bring that spirit of I don't know, but together we do to our time together? So that I am that, you know, you, that, that image you gave of walking alongside someone. I don't have the answer, but can I create an environment that is inviting, that um, creates a sense of support and a time out of time that mm-hmm. allows for, I don't know, but together we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's within field theory. It's within systems theory. It's a, it's about living systems theory, that we are human beings and we're primates and we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist in the we. And even when we're alone, if we are able to carry that sense of the we, we're going to be more resilient than if we feel like there's only an I. Yeah. Yeah. I had a great conversation yesterday with a woman named Dr. Kristen Lee, who's a professor of behavioral science out here at Northeastern. And we were mining similar territory. And and, and it just strikes me that there's a a really wonderful paradox here in that the harder we attempt to cling to pure individualism, the sense that I have to, I know all the answers, or at least I better look like I know all the answers, the more we cut ourselves off from the other. And the more we let the other, the sense of other opinion, of of reputation, of status, like all of those things start to weigh on us more heavily because we feel alone. And what I hear you talking about in this time out of time is a place where we can just set that stuff down and be like, oh yeah, I'm an individual, individual human. I don't have all the answers. I don't need to have all the answers. But if I can walk alongside this collective, whatever this collective might be, my classmates, my coworkers, um, my family, my, my friends, my fellow community activists or political, cam- political campaigners, whatever the context is, there's this kind of stronger I, the stronger self yes. that emerges in the we when we like kind of let down some of those defenses. Is that, is that something you're seeing in your work? Yes, and as yes, I I am seeing that. And as you're speaking, I'm sort of circling back to um, another entry point in this conversation that you brought up earlier, which was about oppression, the oppression, the oppression. Yeah. You know, like who's this work for, and the polarization between this tension between the so-called oppressed and the oppressor. And I was thinking about um, as you were saying that, I was thinking about um, 
actually about partly about open circle <laughs> um, and how my, what an incredible program that is and how inspirational it, this idea was that Pamela um, brought to working with school communities of creating this circle to hold the space. I mean, that's very much the impulse of open circle. I don't know, but together we do. Yeah. We create a space. We have a, the basic structure of a, of these lessons, which is a holding space to learn the supposedly learn these social skills. But my experience at Open Circle of working with those amazing teachers and these children, like from five to 11 years old, was they already know how to do this. It's like it's built into us as primates and you kind of mm -hmm. have to unlearn it. That mm -hmm. sense of compassion that small children have, you know, and if we just keep holding that space open, they don't have to lose connection with their heart and connection with the we because it's so natural, mm. you know, it's so much endemic. It's so much part of our potential um, to be that, uh, you know, one among the many and to hold that space. And then when I think about, um, you know, the, the folks who end up, or all of us, we do it in different ways. We get stratified against one another and thinking about another bit of theory that, that's been really helpful to me from from the Stone Center as well because uh, that's that's was a very that's been very influential in my own thinking in relational cultural theory. There's this idea of um, the what they call the the central relational paradox, and they they talk about it a lot in relation to to men and the upbringing to have to believe oneself to be this individual, to mm -hmm. you know, only have the permission to express certain kinds of emotions, the expectations to put on a certain kind of a, of a mask and appear in these very limited ways and have these very narrow um, ranges for expression. Yeah. And um, I love that, I, that language, this relational cultural paradox, this central paradox. I am a relational being. I'm a mammal. I need to connect. Yeah. But I'm forbidden by my culture from doing so. So how can that not show up? How can that not show up in social relationships? Mm. Mm. Wow. I, I heard recently, and this aligns quite a bit, the, the science, the physiology of what you're talking about, which is the brain is the only organ that regulates externally. Like our liver does what it does internally, and it doesn't need to check the outside environment to regulate. It just self-regulates. But our, our brain, which is sort of a hub of our nervous system, is taking in information from the world and using that to help us interpret whether we're safe, whether we have the resources we need, whether we belong, whether that person likes us, all of these infinite and instant calculations. Yeah. Right. And if we are, if we're ignoring that truth, if we're trying, if we're actively repressing our natural wiring to look to each other for a sense of safety and selfhood and meaning, then yeah, how could it not show up? You're absolutely right. And you shared, a, there's an article you, you wrote um, called Power Control and Organizational Silence. And, and I'm thinking about that article right now because from what I gather, you've taken this sort of, this inquiry process into organizations, Fortune 500 companies, mm -hmm. to help people start to tune into the, 
the complexity of what's been silenced and repressed and how unsilencing it, how opening it up, how bringing that into the space and letting more people share and connect and, yes. and feel that sense of we is actually really beneficial for, for organizations. Yes. Maybe we could explore yes. that a bit more. Like how do you take what we're talking about and, and bring it into a context where there's a ton of pressure yep. to perform, to hit outcomes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, that, that was my, um, that work was informed by, that was my, my doctorate. Mm. Um, so I, I felt like an incredible luxury to have the space to um, do that piece of work over an extended period of time. I think it was maybe 18 months of working with this large organization. I wanted to pick for my doctoral work an organization that had very traditional structures of power and control. Mm. Um, and to look at the possibilities for creating um, a methodology to access the, the innate intelligence within the organization um, from people that, whose voices are normally suppressed and to develop a structure that would take into account the way in which power and control is distributed to prevent people from being able to actually speak their truth. Mm. That whole question was really fascinating to me. And there are a lot of different approaches that get somewhere close to that. But I have, I have had such a strong sense that as much as approaches, brilliant approaches like appreciative inquiry, for example, are very much in that vein, without addressing this idea that the reality of social oppression and the fact that one's words of truth can get one fired, <laughs> um, we are going to keep going around in certain kinds of circles. Mm. So that was, that was my underlying kind of question. Can you, is it possible to work within oppressive social systems to create processes that allow folks to really speak and be heard so that we don't keep circulating the same old dominant stories or stories that people feel they're allowed to speak? the nice stories, but actually name what's real. Yeah. Um, so that, that's where that work emerged from. And um, I'm a firm believer, again, I don't know why, I don't know what the evidence is, but I just believe this to be true, that um, you know, just throwing in some seeds into the, to the flow or throwing some pebbles into the water, they'll start moving. They'll start, they'll have a life of their own. And um, you just have to start. You just have to do it. Um, and that's really what happened in that work um, was uh, the, the, the task was to, um, in that particular work, was to transform the story of leadership inside this, organ this specific organisation. And it involved me talking to the people who were informally seen as the leaders inside that organisation, even though they were not formally seen as the leaders by the leadership themselves. Mm. And when I spoke to shop floor workers and the eight folks in HR offline, I said, well, who informally would you say is a leader in this organization who you wouldn't normally think would be a leader? And I really want to think outside of the white male heterosexual paradigm because that's who gets, you know, labeled as leaders in general. So the most I, I, I got to hear these incredible stories from folks 
who were not public leaders at all. And I interviewed them off-site, offline, um, about what they were doing and their ideas about leadership um, and what they would be willing to talk about with, among other people more publicly and what they would never say in public, what, they, what the limits were about, uh, what they would feel like safe to share without fear of retribution. And my finding from that, one of my unintending finding, findings, outcomes, from that was by having these conversations with me where they could speak their truth, speak their perspective, gave them encouragement, encouraged them to be able to speak more publicly. That Mm. was fascinating. And it it got me thinking about the power of witnessing, Mm. the one-on-one witnessing, the thoughts that go around inside one's own head, inside one's own body, the sensations inside one's body, how we put down our own truth, how we suppress it when it doesn't seem to fit with the stories that we're being told more publicly. And I think that is even more so for folks who are from oppressed groups. Mm. Um, I, have to, I, I have to put myself, I have to leave myself at the door when I go to work. Mm. Mm. I have to speak their language. I have to code switch in whatever ways that might be. And that is a survival, a very important survival instinct and it's also a paradox because the <clears throat> the, the level of um, knowledge and skills and ability to think more creatively that comes through diversity is checked out at the door yeah it's checked at the door yeah and 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 it's not checked <coughs> at the door uh, in fact right like the it, it's constantly being checked it's not like there's even this ability that we have to okay, I'm going to quote unquote code switch now and, and we just take off this part right. of us and leave it behind and then we can just keep going. It's like, no, there's a sort of constant checking at the door that's energetically depleting that reduces space for the kind of creative thinking that you're that's describing. Right. And as a result, what you have, I mean, there's a lot of ways into this narrative, but one story and one part of this is you have a company filled with people who aren't bringing their full energetic creative intellectual potential into the space because they don't that's, feel like they, they're safe to. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And apart from all of the health consequences of that, you know, of, of that sort of the hypertension that goes along with that, the, you know, all the, the negative effects, the mental health issues that go along with having to live this relational cultural paradox, right? That I have to keep myself out, that I am not okay. I'm only I'm only okay when I am uh, hidden hidden away, when I hide myself away. Yeah, and so this witnessing that you're describing, starting with the one-to-one interviews that you do, is a space where you're inviting people to bring all of that back into a conversation and a relationship. Is that right? I think that word inviting is the most important. Hmm. Hmm. Everything has to be about invitation and not an expectation. Mm. And that goes from whoever I'm working with in whatever um, situation. Uh, and, and also understanding that I myself am going to have an impact on that conversation. My accent precedes me, right? I have this British accent. It seems to have 
land on people differently, <laughs> you know, and I can forget it. And then someone will remind me. So my accent tells all kinds of stories that hide a lot of reality of my who I actually, where I come from, my own experiences, because it has this connotations that people have of being educated and privileged that when I'm back in England, don't have this, that's not the most important thing about me because everyone has this accent. So my other parts of my identity become more privileged. So it's like, how do we, no matter what we may know about it, all the, how do all the hidden parts of us get hidden in those conversations? So how do I constrain the kinds of narratives people feel they can share with me? Mm. And there's more than I can possibly know about that. I can only know what I know about that. Mm. So that's why it has to be an invitation. Mm. And I have to um, own that. You know, how am I impacting what's happening and evolving between us right now? Right, right. And I get the sense that if you stand in a place of invitation without expectation of getting a certain kind of answer from someone, the, the odds go up that they will surprise you. Because expectations inevitably mean we, we look, confirmation bias tells us we look to have our expectations met. But if you move invitationally, then the fewer expectations you have, the more surprise, the more dimensionality, the more complexity, the more room for all of that there is. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It's like starting like we did this morning with a 45 second of just like breathing into the space, into coming back to a sense of emptiness. Mm. 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 how do we cultivate that as as all the time how do I keep coming back I don't actually know I don't know but together we do I don't know but together <laughs> we do oh, that's such a wonderful mantra <laughs> you use the word encourage and I want to underline that for people because I love I love language and I love the ways words we use all the time sometimes lose some of their root meaning yeah um, but like when I generally when I hear the word encouragement, I think of like, oh, okay, Shoshana, you can do this. Go like there's this sort of cheerleading kind of sort of warm, fuzzy quality to it. But but the word courage, yeah. In the sense that if someone gives it, extends an invitation to be seen to you, yeah, that some kind of that brings out courage that's inside of them that encourages them yeah and so i'm wondering when you see someone enter that space well first what does it look like feel like how does it land in them how does it land in you what shifts when you see that courage come online like how do you know when it's there and then when they have it what is that what happens next in this organizational context so now they've courageously they're showing up with courage they're sharing a part of themselves that they've kept hidden for real fear of survival and your work is to help them bring that part safely into the larger organizational context how do you take their courage and, and encourage them even more to step in to the organizational space in ways that they haven't felt they could before so I am seeing, I went back when you were asking me that question and um, wanting me to fill that out. I actually went, my mind was going back to my open circle training days again. <laughs> I love it. 
I'm going to at some point hopefully get Pamela on here as well, but maybe you could just say yes. a, a word or two about the, the, what you're being trained in and then, and then tell us what you're, what you're connecting Yes. <clears throat> well, the Open Circle program is, you know, in a very shorthand form, is um, a social-emotional learning program um, that is being implemented in hundreds of elementary school systems um, and works with a whole whole systems ideas and principles um, to uh, with a, a curriculum a grade differentiated curriculum the curriculum is the same lessons kindergarten through fifth grade and the lessons are about how to listen to each other inclusion um, recognizing discrimination they're lessons but they they I, I I hold the idea of lesson kind of lightly. They're really about the vehicle through which we build relationship and connection. Um, and the program, yes, it's about helping children learn those skills, but more so, I would say, I wish Pamela was here to have this conversation. Now. <laughs> I know. I <laughs> it's more so about the adult attuning, reattuning themselves and recalibrating themselves with that idea that their brain, exactly, as you said earlier, their brain is the only open system, only open organ in the body, that we're co-regulating. They're using voice and prosody and certain um, facilitation skills, slowing things down. They are modeling inclusion. They're mm -hmm. modeling kindness and respect. And through this this process of using these lessons and calling on children and creating space for children to be heard, the children become calm, calmer, more receptive, more able to relax their collective nervous systems, more cooperative with one another. And guess what? The classroom is easier to manage. Mm. The academic outcomes are, are, are have an opportunity to be better. So mm. all the research actually su suggests there was a longitudinal study done, can't remember the, the years, I think in the late 90s, that um, suggests that um, um, relational uh, this relational connectedness in, an, in a school system is a precondition, precondition for academic success. It's a precondition. And as far as I'm concerned, if it's a precondition for academic success, how can that not be true in any organizational environment? Mm. That this sense of connectedness, relationship, respect and mutuality in any system is a precondition for organizational success, however that might be defined by the metrics in any given organization. Yeah. But if we don't, I'm going, I haven't lost, I'm trying to keep that track of encouragement. Yes. I, it open circle, I, one of the things that we taught was this was Adlerian theory about like the, what we called the four C's. And I can't remember them all now, but one of them, but they're about the need to connect, the need to feel included. These are basic human needs. And if we don't get them met in positive ways, we will seek ways to get them met in not positive ways. Mm. But if we do feel included, if we do feel we get emotional connection, if we do feel that we count to make a out an outcome of that is courage. The courage is a relational phenomenon in this sense and not, again, not an individualistic phenomenon. So when I have those conversations one-on-one, -on -one, it's through the relationship that the courage emerges. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
And when it emerges, there seems to me to be an opportunity to turn side by side with this person who you've been face to face with having this conversation, turn side by side and look out into the broader organizational landscape and introduce them back into the, the system or introduce this part of them back into the system or, or there's some, some move there that can happen next that couldn't right. have happened yes. before. You asked me what does that look like now? You asked me what would I see in the person? So, and it really was an out, it wasn't that I encouraged them. I wasn't doing anything. I was just listening and I was just responding. So I guess this is also about another core principle of mine, which is about just everything is call and response, everything. Mm-hmm. And when we don't accurately respond to the call, we're going to have a distortion of some kind. So I just noticed this is a phenomenon when I was interviewing folks that when I was just listening and creating this open space and asking them questions about their leadership and being really genuinely curious because I wanted to understand, I had no particular investment either way, you know, doing a dissertation with an organization, I was doing it for me because I was out of my as much out of my intellectual and social curiosity than because I was getting paid for it. Yeah. You know, once you get paid as a consultant, I was being paid for it as it so happens, but that was like an incredible side benefit. <laughs> it wasn't the primary reason why I was doing the work because then you get bought off, you yeah. know, and you're like in the hock of this person's paying me and they want to hear certain ideas. I, I had, that's why it was a luxury. I could mm-hmm. just, so what I saw was when, when my excitement about hearing their experience was registering and landing in the people I was speaking to, they would get more and more like, oh, wow. You mean you could almost like, the, yeah, their, their shoulders would go back. Their faces would become more animated. Their speech would become more animated like mine is right now. And it would be like, you know, you could see the penny drop. Like, so this is a something. This means something. This is information that could be for the be useful beyond myself. Someone might actually be interested in my ideas, and I think that is where the encouragement came as a as a process. And it was like, oh yeah, I could talk about that. Oh yeah, yeah. What's the harm? I could talk about that. And then the next step was creating these. Um, we created these leadership conferences. Um, with about 60 people in the room at a time. And we had it, uh, they were organized around these little learning tables. And I would interview these folks who I'd had these pre-conversations with about their preferred images and experiences of leadership. And it would be in the presence of their um, other members of their organization. I I separated them from anyone that they directly reported to. Mm -hmm. I did do that. felt that was really important. But they had other people's bosses in the room. Because, again, systems theory doesn't really matter. You don't need your own boss in the room. You need someone's boss in the room. (laughs) It is one organization. (laughs) (laughs) And we had these listening tables, um, and it was all narrative therapy style. I trained a group of um, a cross-functional team of folks within this corporation in basic narrative interviewing skills. And they created these little reflecting teams where they gathered um, feedback about what was the impact of hearing these stories? Where did the the folks, the other organizational members, how did they resonate with the stories that they were hearing? Um, what did it mean to them? And uh, 
How did it take further? How did it bring forth a new conversation about the possibilities of leadership and what that mm. could look like? What could preferred leadership look like in this context? Mm. So you were essentially first privately and then in this sort of collective observational space publicly inviting people to talk about the thing. Oh yeah, I could talk about that. Like, yes, like, good. Let's go talk about it. And yeah. then inviting everyone else who is in, in that particular group, this cross-functional group to bear witness, to listen and to do some sense making of what they're hearing to tell a new story for what it means to yes. be there in this, in this organization. Exactly. Yeah. And it was surprising. I mean, we, we, I, we were really surprised. We being the, um, the cross-functional group that was um, really working with the data that was coming out of this process, we were surprised by the kinds of narratives that were being spoken out loud that had never been spoken out loud before. For example, about <clears throat> the, the endemic racism and sexism in the organization mm. and these incredibly brave folks who were speaking out about their experience but rather than those stories just hanging there in the air, because we'd set up these listening tables, folks around the room were picking up the themes of the stories and saying how meaningful it was to hear these stories being spoken out loud and how they had witnessed these racist and sexist incidents that they'd never felt they could say out loud publicly mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. painful it was. And you could, feel, again, back to that idea of holding the space, so for me, it was really important that we had this team of us who had, I, I trained to hold the emotional space because this is, this is emotions and um, corporations, you know, those are like seen as antithesis yeah. to each other. Yeah. And yet it's like that relational cultural paradox, right? That central relational paradox. Of course there are emotions in a corporation. They are but it's really driven underground. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we could probably reach out and get our hands on hundreds of different examples of corporations who this, this model of suppression and the interest of profit yeah. is producing a ton of unintended uh, mental health side effects, oh, yeah. uh, ecological impact, yeah. like the whole kit and caboodle of negative outcomes, side, sort of collateral damage from the fact that if we're going to repress this energy, it's going to go somewhere. Yes, exactly. And so, so now you've created this space, you're holding the emotion, you're not, it's not it's not leaking out. It's not spilling over. It's not bursting the container and, and making people start arguing with each other. Right. There's, then there seems to me there's another move there about uh, around integration or maybe a set of moves where it's like, okay, we've named these patterns and we're discovering, oh, wow. Like I could imagine myself in one of these listening circles as a white man going, yeah, I have seen that dynamic before, but I was too scared to, to speak out because I didn't want to be seen as the villain in that situation. Or I didn't want to be seen like it was scary to me to acknowledge that I might have been someone who is contributing to the very dynamic that was also causing me a form of, of pain. Yes. yes. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like I would love to hear you talk, take us a, to the next step of, of how you help everyone 
uphold yes. that and move forward with it as a collective? Great question, Andy. That's like that again. We're circling right back to that, you know, the oppressor and oppressed pa- yeah. uh, paradigm. Yeah. And um, one of the ways that I handled that uh, was to make sure that it wasn't only the uh, the so-called oppressed people and their hidden narratives of leadership mm. that we elevated, but this idea, which you know, I love within narrative therapy, it's the subjugated narratives within the lives of so-called dominant people. Mm. Mm. So, you know, that in some ways feels like vastly uncharted territory that maybe we're beginning to feel into a little bit like through the men, some of the sort of men's social justice, men who are in social justice movements as men in revealing the costs of masculinity, for example. Yeah whether that's um, the cost of masculinity for men of color or the cost of masculinity for white men, the cost of masculinity are going to look different across race and class, but there are costs no matter what. How to to do that? And those costs are very, are lived through the body. They're lived through the body and they're lived through the fact that men die younger. Men feel more isolated. These are these are real effects. How do, how did they get to be so valuable when they are so costly? I mean, there's a basic paradox for me in in thinking about that. So what I wanted to do, what felt really important for me to do, from the point of view of living into into bringing those stories, those subjugated stories alive for individual men within leadership positions in this company but more so for the modeling that, again, this brain is an open, the only openly communicating organ. If folks who are sitting in the, in the I, don't know, I don't like the word oppressed in this case, in the more vulnerable position, let's put yeah. it that way, yeah. are vulnerable to having to hide their experience. If they hear from a person who's sitting in the dominant position, stories that of their vulnerability, my sense was it would have an, a, an opening effect mm. on folks who were sitting in the vulnerable position. Mm. So another question that I asked folks when I was doing this, this project, who in this, I would ask, who is someone that you believe to be a leader who's lost his way, who's in the dominant position. And they, a significant amount of people pointed to a particular leader mm. that they didn't like. Mm. They found his leadership style really oppressive. I thought, I need to interview him. Mm. Because mm. if I really believe this theory, so then I need to hold, then, then there's, there's more to this than meets the eye. And this man is not going away. He's not getting fired. Yeah. He's a force to be dealt with, and we're going to deal with it. So I did the same thing. I met with him one-on-one privately, and in my mind, what are the stories that he would be reluctant to tell in public? And I built a relationship with him. It makes me want to cry, so I'm not telling this story. This is years ago. <laughs> I met with him one-on-one and it was definitely the hardest pre-interview that I did because I felt my own discomfort with him 
he was in a, you know, a power privileged position in relation to me, you know, as, as a woman, you know, so I was very aware of that. And this is, was a very, you know, this is an industrial, this was a, an industrial company creating the building, the fuselage for the, seven four, for the 747 actually. Wow. So it was a very masculinist organization. Anyway, we had this conversation and um, he began to, he started off by telling me the, the stories that he has come to live by, right? Here are the five points of leadership, you know, A, B, C, D, E, da, da, da. this is what you do to rally your workforce. I'm like, okay, this is like the stage. You know, I felt like I'm talking to an actor who's doing a monologue. That's mm. what it felt like. Mm. And that's where also my acting training kind of comes in handy because it's like what voice am I hearing and what's the voice that, what will help this person be able to move into a different voice? a voice of vulnerability. So I knew that I needed to listen to that because of course, this is what, this is the voice. This monologue is what has been rewarded for this man. This is the voice that got him this position. What is the risk that's involved for him in letting that, putting that story aside and speaking from another voice Mm. because the risks are just as high for him yes yes they're just different and they look different so because he had told me that story the five points of leadership and I got really curious with him in our private conversation what were your I, I I switched the conversation around to so what were some of your earliest experiences of working with leaders? Mm. Who were the best leaders you ever worked with? And that's when his voice switched. Mm. It's amazing how one question yeah. can bring out a new aspect of someone. Yeah. But it's like he had to go through the performance of white male masculine upper middle class leadership before before he could put that mask aside mm. because that's what that those were the conditions of sale of himself you know yes yeah yeah i am so appreciative of you right now for sharing for inviting all of us into this exploration and what i want to underlying because I'm really passionate. I do I do a lot of work with men. I, I have a, an artist community called the Society of Gentle Beasts, which mm-hmm. is for anyone who identifies as a man. And you know, in that space, one of the costs of there are, are a number of costs. And one of the costs of only valuing what we might call masculine parts of our identity is we lose touch with the some some of the creative, sensitive, intuitive, open parts of our identity that are actually there. And right. for me, one of the one of the learnings I keep getting is that we think these are zero sum engagements. That if I if I really if I start to tap into my creative, intuitive, quote unquote feminine energy, then I lose my my confident stoic quote-unquote masculine energy and and of course that's not true at all it just really feels true in that moment where someone might be pushing against and what I hear you saying is like no you weren't pushing against you were doing the opposite you were making space for okay get 
bring in the masculine energy. Okay, got it. Now tell me about this. Just pull on a thread. Let's open this door. Let's see what happens. And and that's that's so important right now. I think masculine and feminine energy are critical for us as a species. And there's no doubt that they each have their own qualities. But if we see them as mutually exclusive as zero sum, then all of us are losing out on that. Right. If we're if we still exist in a world where there are many men in positions of power and leadership who believe that zero sum equation, then then we aren't going to organizationally access all of that energy that's that's potentially available to us if we can integrate and open up. So just think it's wonderful to hear that the the leader who was quote unquote like lost his way the most, who who most people didn't like that you were able to move towards that because so often I think what happens is we, we, we say there's the, there's the problem right there. And if only he exactly went away, we would all be better. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so exactly. what happened when you, you opened it up, he, he, he started sharing his experience of leadership. And, and at some point I'm imagining you were able to bring him back again in the same way into this organizational context yeah. with more complexity more depth more nuance than than he had ever realized for himself and that anyone else had given him credit for and what happened next yes and we're back to witnessing that's yeah. where we were this could not have happened without i don't know but together we do living into the future unknown together it couldn't have happened it couldn't it wouldn't happen by me one on one having this interview with him because the it, the field has to respond it's not the individual it's the field and we had a field because he's in this in this organizational context so he i did the interview and you could feel the the feel of the room shift mm. as he as he became more vulnerable and then the 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 process the reflecting team process or I called that a team inquiry process is I interviewed him we took a pause and then each then the um gathered people who were at this conference gathered around these different cross-functional tables with a trained facilitator eliciting responses to his story they had a time to just respond and he just had time to just sit and then one by one, people responded to what they heard. And the directions are not about the usual business as usual corporate response. It's like, how were you moved by what you heard? What was moving? Did, what did you hear that was unexpected or surprising in what you heard from whatever his name was? I don't know, whatever I called him in my thing. Um, and what would you like to hear more about? Mm. So that in itself, you just start to feel the loosening up, right? The unsticking of this rigid kind of positioning, which is the social positioning and the organizational positioning and narratives that are called from called forth in corporations, rather than the fluid, the actual natural systemic fluidity that happens when people can speak from what's real. Mm. And what what we tracked after the conferences because this was my doctoral research, I needed to capture what were the effects of having this process. And um, everyone in, the, in this little team that I had 
I had um, trained in the process were capturing narratives that were coming out uh, subsequent to the to these conferences, and they said, "Oh wow, people are talking in the elevator to this guy." <laughs> it was like the little things. He started to walk around the building, and he's asking people about their families. Hmm. Looking at the photographs they have on their desks and saying, "Oh my, your your daughter's really beautiful." Hmm. Like they saw a shift in him because he's a human being. Yeah, you know, but the con- social conditions constrained him from being who the per- the possibility of being able to be the complex human person that he actually. Of course is, right? Yeah. I mean, gosh, this is sort of the, what I'm tuning into right now is the, the way our social systems can get into these reinforcing feedback loops. Yes. Like the system he's a part of has, has rewarded him, has encouraged, has encouraged him, has, uh, has incentivized him to, to show up in a certain way. And, and that's led him to be in a position of power. And so he's continuing to replay that way of being in the system. And then the system is, is receiving that and responding to it. And it just, like, we, we get further and further apart from each other the more we yes. keep leaning into right. these patterns. But, but yeah. all it takes is, which is, is not, it's simple but not easy, is yes. space for the nuance and complexity of all of the humans in the system to come back in. And something yeah. new can be born from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love and it that. has to do, I think, with this idea of call and response, which is yeah. a very actually a, at root a very scientific idea, right? <laughs> that everything is call and response in in our universe. Yeah. But as humans, unfortunately, we we our overdeveloped capacity for thinking cuts us off from mm. being able to really tune into our bodies to hear and let things land and then be able to accurately track the response that's called for and not disconnect it. I was just, I just went back to, uh, I was just watching cause I, cause I teach family systems. I went back to um, some of Gregory Bateson's work in the last couple of weeks. Mm. There's a fa- fantastic video made by his daughter, Nora Bates- Bateson, okay. um, which is a real testament to both her relationship with him but also to the the basic foundational principles of systems theory, you know, that human beings keep not seeing deep interconnections and severing them. Hmm. How do we start to remember that we are a part of the system and flow in the knowledge of that? Yeah which kind of also brings me back to one of the very first things you said about, you know, how every, what part of what the pandemic is teaching you is that every connection, no matter how fleeting counts and can change your life. Um, yeah, we it also made me think, that before, before recording. Yeah. Oh, it was before we were recording. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. And the sort of, yes, that's so powerful. We don't even know. And then thinking about the person, the first person who, um, got the virus, got it from an animal. Yeah. Like how more implicitly interconnected could we possibly be? Right. Yeah. The idea I was sharing 
is the truth that we are interconnected. And the virus is underlining that. The pandemic is underlining that in a really scary and uncomfortable way. But there are countless other invisible lines of connection between all of us that we can tune into. And these can be lines of love and compassion and curiosity and generosity, uh, collaboration, creativity. And we really don't know. I mean, teachers, you, you, we mentioned Open Circle a few times. As a teacher, you're working with people, young people in an incredibly formative time in their lives. And much of your work, much of the outcomes of your work, you don't get to see. And those moments that teachers that live for is when a student comes back 10, 15, 20 years later and says, that thing you said to me or that class that you led or that trip that we went on changed my life. Right. So, so like inviting people into the possibility that, that we can remember, as you said, Uh that we are members of this collective and that we just don't know what positive or negative impact we might have. But if we can move from a place of being aware of that interconnectedness, it completely shifts how we show up. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're coming down the home stretch here, Shoshana. One thing I'm realizing we probably should have talked about at the, at the <laughs> top of the call, we've talked a lot about, we've referred a lot to narrative therapy. And, yeah. and so we're both, we're both aware of that. You, you're much more familiar than I am because you practice it for many, many years. But I wonder if we could could just take two or three minutes to help unpack, to make explicit what's been implicit in that particular art form and and form of care, and why it's so powerful. Uh, and then, and then I just have one more question after that to kind of land the plane. But I'd love, it, in whatever way you would want to share with the folks listening who many of whom probably have never heard of narrative therapy. Uh, what, what's special about that approach in terms of, of helping people develop and helping people connect and do all the things that we've been talking about? Yeah. Well, yeah, narrative therapy is, is one thread that's been really important in my life. And even more so has been for me creating an approach to narrative therapy that integrates the arts. Mm. Um, because narr- narrative therapy, as I studied it and learned it, as pa- which is very powerful, is very much based in storytelling and the idea that the stories that we tell about ourselves and about our lives construct how we move forward in our lives. We have to have, as humans, we create narratives that give our lives meaning and purpose and structure and help us move forward. And But those I, those stories aren't just made up inside our own heads. They are made up against a landscape of stories that are already givens in our lives. So mm. our, you know, where we're born, who our family members are, our race, our class, our gender identities, et cetera, et cetera, you know, ad infinitum, we inherit them and we don't even realize how much they're influencing us. Um, and, uh, for me, the, the, the idea that also our stories aren't individual and that they, we they change because they change in communities. They change through the through these processes of witnessing one another's stories and partnering with 
therapists or organizational consultants, practitioners in this process of open exploration and reauthoring. Mm. Um, the big shift came for me was for, for me as a, someone who had done, had some background in, in theater and um, realizing the power of all these other languages beyond speech mm. um, and for, particularly for me, performance, um, that when we are using, when we're able to use color and movement and speech patterns and drama to replay or play back a story more in, uh, from a different point of view or a preferred future image of how that ending might be different, it reaches into parts of ourselves much more deeply on a much more deeper and integrated level than speech alone. Mm, mm. Uh, and so my, my really the most recent part of my work has I've spent the last decade as uh, the chair of the expressive arts therapy program at CIS. And one of the things that has been um, the most, well, most meaningful to me and to my students as well has been collaborating on creating this, what I'm calling now narrative therapy, <laughs> like yeah, the art. art yeah. Nice, nice. Which is, you know, it becomes its own thing. You know, it's, it's become its own thing. Um, it's a real blend of narrative therapy and expressive arts therapy using all of the arts in service of, of performing, drawing, bringing forth through multi all of our senses, the images of preferred futures, mm. you know, of mm. how we want our worlds to be so that we can live into them. Because without an image of what our preferred future is, how do we, where are we going, you know? Where are we going? We live right now in the present. This is the future. This really is the future. Yes, this is and it. we yes. need to also have an eye on how could this proceed in more preferred ways? Right. And how we, can we envision that? There's something about the arts that brings that into 3D. Mm, yeah, lovely. The, the, the thing that's landing with me is this idea, like the analogy that's coming up is this idea that we come into the world, a world that we have not chosen. It's the world that is the, the social world, the cultural world, the, the bureaucratic worlds, the bodies yep. we inhabit, all of it. We show up. Yep. The world is the world. And like, we're sort of like water poured into a vase. And so the water shapes us. And many of us stop there. We're like, okay, got it. This is the world. This is how it all works. And this is who I am without seeing that we were being shaped by the vase. But then there's what I'm hearing in what you're describing is there's an opportunity to realize that we can shape the vase even as, that sh as it's shaping us, that we yeah. could build a world that we could live into differently. And then also that, that our descendants, our children, our grandchildren, like we're right now making the future that they're going to yes. be coming into. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And if we don't engage with that consciously and constructively by telling new stories and imagining new possibilities, then we're probably going to have pretty similar world in the future that we have now, plus all of the consequences of not shifting anything. Right. right. If we don't catch up to the implications of what's changing and respond yeah. rather than react. It's again, what's the call? What are we being called to do? Not were we, what were we, you know, this idea, oh, let's just go back to normal. There was never a normal to go back to ever, even when we thought that was normal. 
there's only ever and it, there's only evolution of everything and that's where I'm going I'm uh, why Gregory Bateson is my you know my <laughs> go-to person this week because <laughs> I'm trying to remember really hone into that energy of you know his complete commitment and understanding of the micro and the macro and how they're related yeah oh. beautiful so my last question is the driving question of this whole podcast. It's the reason why I wanted to create these spaces for these kinds of conversations. It's a huge question, so I, I offer it lightly and invite you into it. With, with all of, like, with just this conversation we had, so much is implicit. And the question is, what is your fiercest hope for humanity in this moment that we're in? And that can be a micro moment or a macro moment. What do you hope for for us as a species? My fiercest hope for humanity is that we listen. Mm. We listen to what is mm. and we co-respond. Mm. We respond together collectively. Mm. We use this as like the impulse of ultimate release of our, of our collective creativity. Mm. That is the potential. Beautiful. Yeah. And can you say your mantra one more time? What was it? I, I don't know, but together. I don't know, but together we do. I don't know, but together we do. Yes. So if we could all I listen. I have to give a shout out to Danielle Drake, my colleague who coined that. Uh, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's the mantra for that listening that you just described. Yeah. I don't know what we do with this moment in our history, this particular pandemic moment, and also the broader ecological, social cultural forces that are moving underneath the society that we thought was so permanent and that is maybe ready to evolve. Yes. Okay. There's something really reassuring about that because you don't have to know. You don't have to know, right? You just have to listen. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for that invitation. Thank you for this wonderful conversation, Shoshana. It's been, I feel enlivened. I feel encouraged. Oh, good. Yeah. Me too. It's been a pleasure. Really, thank you, Andy, for inviting me. Thanks so much. And if people want to find you uh, and find your work online, I'll, I'll make sure to include all of this in the show notes on my website. But just if someone's listening and they want to find out more, what, what would be the best place for them to go? Well, I am in the, the CIS is one place. That's the California, California Institute of Integral Studies Expressive Arts Therapy Program. I am in currently in the process of uh, creating my own little online school called Key of Life Coaching and Training. Nice. Where I'm going to be offering some uh, uh, coaching, focusing on training coaches in arts-based narrative uh, approaches. Beautiful. That makes yeah. makes me think of. Is that intended to invoke Stevie Wonder's album Songs in the Key of Life? <laughs> kind of. It's a lot of things in there, actually. Yeah. Key of Life. There's something in narrative therapy, the collective uh, practices, which are about bringing people together around um, common challenges and creating I Don't Know Together We Do through arts-based practices. That's really what I'm most passionate about. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, when that is ready to be shared with the world, please send it send it my way and I'll make sure that, that we share it. In the meantime, folks can come check out uh, your work at California Institute of Integral Studies. And I'll also have this podcast when it goes live posted on my website at mindfulcreative.coach so they can kind of see all of the, the show notes from our conversation today. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Yeah. Have a good day.
You too, Shoshana. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love on the review boards. And if you're interested in learning more about my transformational coaching work, or if you'd like to get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings, sign up for my newsletter at mindfulcreative.coach. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.